I have just listened to the last episode of my daughter's Walk the Pod podcast for this week. Her 42nd series, episode 10, Radical Self-Trust. And I liked a lot of it. It resonated very much with me and a lot of the things that I've been talking about, which is perhaps not so surprising. And I wanted to home in on it a little bit in the context of living the present. Because I think that in order to live the present, in order to do what I was talking about in fairly emphatic terms yesterday, and trusting the present to be the best preparation for the future that amounts to anything, or at least to the extraction of as much as we can from the experience of the present as being that best, most optimal preparation. That, I think, does require very considerable self-trust, radical self-trust. And in particular, it involves a willingness, a readiness, an ability to set aside the advice of others who often with the very best of intentions, we'll try to tell us how to live our lives, what to do, what we should be doing, how we should be going about our tasks and the paths, the trajectories on which we should be setting off in order to achieve our objectives. And they're nearly always wrong, not because they're doing anything maliciously, indeed quite the reverse, some of the most heartfelt advice one can ever receive is from people who care very much about us, but sometimes we need to say yes, I respect and value what you've said, but I'm sorry to say that I think that there is something going on in me there is an inner resonance, to use that word again, that suggests that you are not right, and indeed that suggests that I should not heed your advice, because it's your advice. It's advice that arises out of your experience. It's located in your trajectory. It's located in your set of values and experiences, and where you are, in the great journey of life and therefore it's not really tailored sufficiently to where I am, to where I've been, to what I can do, to where I'm going and therefore with the greatest of respect I am going to ignore you or at least be selective in what I take note of because you may in some instances have good things, good suggestions to make pointers that I do well to heed because they will themselves resonate with where I am. But a lot of what you're saying probably doesn't resonate. And the point that my daughter was making, that it's important to recognise that if something in you is saying, no, don't do that, or delay that, or wait a minute or just think twice or whatever it might be there could be reasons for that that we couldn't possibly articulate 
couldn't possibly bring up to the surface and talk about or even make ourselves fully conscious of, aware of. But deep in the inner recesses of our non-conscious brain, there may still be very good reasons why we should heed that advice, take it seriously, and do or not do what it's telling us without necessarily an explanation. That, of course, it suddenly occurs to me, is just like the black box problem that we've talked about before, that when you ask an AI for something, it doesn't always explain what it suggests or says or tells you. Sometimes it fails to explain it very well, and it comes out of a black box whose inner workings we are almost entirely incapable of following, just as we are incapable of following the inner workings of the brain. But all of that doesn't alter the fact that the advice that comes out may still be good. I mean, that you may think I'm contradicting myself here. Couldn't that also be true of the advice of friends? Well, yes, of course it could. I've admitted that it could. If the advice that friends give us resonates with where we are, then perhaps we should heed it. But we shouldn't just heed it because they think it's good advice or because they think it's worked for them. Because it may well work for them, may well have worked for them spectacularly well. But that doesn't mean that it'll work for us or ever could. So the point that I'm making is that this black box throws up stuff, whether it be the black box of our brain or the black box that is an AI or the black box that is somebody else's brain, for that matter. And we have to use what we get judiciously. Now, just this morning, I was exploring an interesting idea that I came across on Twitter, X, which I've become much fonder of since I've narrowed down my field of people that I follow largely just to those who've got something to say about artificial intelligence and almost nobody else. And the interesting thing that I was following was what's called the needle in a haystack problem. And it goes, to put it bluntly, like this. As I've said many a time here, the length of the conversation that you can have with an AI gets longer and longer as our processing power increases and as the algorithms or methods that we use improve. So that now we're not just at 4,000 tokens or at 32,000 tokens. The latest GPT from OpenAI does 128,000. And anthropic AI with its clawed 2.1 reckons to be able to do 200,000 tokens, which is about 180,000 words, or a pretty long book. A pretty long book. It's not as long as this podcast. The uh, latest count is that we're over 750,000 words, but of course that's over the whole 11 series. But nonetheless, it's quite a lot. And considerably more than 
anybody, including me, could hope to hold in focus all at once. Well, that's all right. But anyway, the, the needle in a haystack problem is this. When you examine what an AI knows about these longer and longer documents, a phenomenon that emerges is that they are not very good at focusing in on single sentences that might contain important pieces of information. They seem somehow to lose sight of the specific in the general. And going back to very early episodes in series eight, where we started out our AI explorations and had over a hundred, well, actually exactly a hundred episodes of it. There, we can see why that would be so, because we can see that the AI isn't remembering things fact by fact. It's producing a, course, a sort of blancmange or a melange of all these pages and hundreds of thousands of tokens, tens of thousands of tokens anyway, in which the specifics do not necessarily emerge or, it, or remain as specific. And this is one of the reasons why they hallucinate, make things up, because what they're doing all the time is trying to reconstitute out of this vast melange of information something that responds to the wide and unpredictable range of things that their interlocutors might say to them. Well, I get all that, and I hope you do too. But in and amongst all of this falls this problem that if you put, and this is what the experimenters, the researchers have been doing, if you put a specific sentence into a very long document and then ask it a question based upon that question, which only that sentence, sorry, based upon that sentence, which only that sentence can answer, often, as the document get long, gets longer, the AI will prove unable to do that, unable to answer it. And the particular example that Claude struggled with in its longer versions was somebody just took a long document of about 200,000 words and stuck in the middle of it. The best thing to do is to eat at a particular cafe in San Francisco on a sunny day. And then asked, I think a slightly unfair question of the AI, which is not quite the same as the one that it in fact, was the fact that it was given. What is the most fun thing to do in San Francisco? And it didn't always manage to find the sentence, but then of course the sentence doesn't actually say that it was fun, it just says it was the best. Now something can be the best without necessarily being fun, so you can forgive the AI for not necessarily getting this right. But anyway, that's neither here nor there in this context. The point is that the AI could not deal with a specific fact in and amongst an enormous sea, melange as I'm, I'm calling it, of unrelated facts in this particular instance. All right, I thought, well, that's very interesting. Let's see. I, I, I haven't, in fact, done any specific experiments with AI's reading documents. So I logged on to Anthropic AI's Claude.ai site 
which I think some of you've already heard of. And I uploaded a paper that I wrote, uh, a sort of summary paper that I wrote for myself, a PDF, on using text. So it's all nicely typeset. I uploaded something on text called searching for Carmichael numbers using primality criteria. So, you know, it was a, a good sort of soft afternoon read, something to take to the beach. And then I asked, I gave it, I uploaded it, I asked Claude to read it, or whatever it does, and I started asking you questions. So first of all, I said, can you summarise the paper? Which it did extremely well. Sorry about the wind. I've got my phone in my trusty pocket, so I hope it will be bearable. It's getting up today. It's a beautiful day. Warmer than it should be, really, on the, what is it, the 16th of December. And uh, blue skies, fluffy clouds, sun, well, going down. I may just get back home in daylight. But because I was doing this, I was a bit later out than usual. Anyway, so then I started asking it about the detail of the paper. And I have to say, it did an extraordinarily good job. And in fact, in the end, had explained my own paper back to me in ways that made the paper sound both better and clearer than I think it really was. I'm not going to go into the details of second order Carmichael numbers, those that are rigid and those that are non-rigid uh, in Howe's classification. I'm only going to say that Claude did a very good job of summarising those properties and saying in what respects they worked. And this is not a very long paper. But it made me think about the upside, you know, if I take the 750,000 words of this podcast, I can't upload the whole lot, of course, at once. But if I slice it into series, I suppose since there are 11 series, each series may not be of equal length, but let's suppose they're each going to be around 75,000 words, which might amount, since there tend to be slightly more tokens than there are words to... 100,000 tokens, well within Claude's scope. I could then upload each series and ask Claude to do kind of abstract and then put the abstract at the head of the series and, for anybody that wanted it, produce a summary. Well, not just a summary, but a, a transcript with a with an executive summary at the beginning. And if I could do that, then I could reasonably say that if you read the 11 abstracts, you'd have some idea of what the whole unmaking sense thrust is. And indeed, it might help me, since I can't keep all 750,000 words in focused conscious mind at the same time, it might help me to see what I've been saying. Because, as I'm sure anyone listening to this will have appreciated by now, I don't always know what I'm talking about or why. Sometimes I say things without having a clue why I'm saying them, just trusting myself, having the sort of radical self-trust 
that my daughter was talking about to say, well, if this is what I feel I want to talk about now, just as if this is what I want to do now, or this is where I want to go now, or this is who I want to be with now, if I do all that, that's radical self-trust. That's believing in myself, my insight, my intuition, my judgment, even if I can't give a concrete explanation to anybody, including myself, at the time. This is also for the 450th episode of I'm Making Sense. And I think that we're, we're starting to find ourselves in the kind of position where we're starting to reconstruct a different kind of sense. I hope we are. Reconstructing a different kind of sense that moves us forward so that we don't just say, all right, we've unmade sense. We've also remade a bit of sense, not in anything that has the pretentiousness to think of itself as being final, but just something that says, well, you can't live in a permanent state of disassembly. One does need to reintegrate, reconstitute, remake the things that one has unmade. And I think that living the present, extracting as much of the meaning of the present moment as we can at every moment, believing in ourselves, even if we can't fully justify or even at all justify that action, what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, what we're interested in, having confidence in our interests, both as children and as young men and women and as adults and as geriatrics like me, believing that our instincts are right, that our interests are the things that we can do best at, pursuing those interests through thick and thin and often in the face of scepticism on the part of others. Beautiful sunshine has suddenly emerged from behind a cloud. If we do that, then I think we are best placed. My, my statement, I suppose, my creedal statement, my statement of faith, what I believe more than I believe anything, is that the only person I'm any good at being, or ever could be any good at being, is myself. And to the extent that other people have, or do, or let's be honest, will, persuade me to be somebody else for some reason, often for the very best of reasons, with the very best of intentions, because they think that I'm heading down the wrong path. Anybody who manages to persuade me to deflect from that is not doing me a, a good service, a great service. We need all of us to have the courage, the radical self-trust, to live the present as the only preparation for the future that really amounts to anything, which is honouring Dewey's great maxim. Living our interests, living the things that energise us, doing the things 
so that energise us. Doing the things that give us joy, that bring fulfilment, that make us feel glad to be alive. And that, I think, is the only possible reason that there could ever be to be alive. Even if we accept the Meryl Streep version of Mrs Dalloway who says we stay alive for other people. But I think that the point that I would make in response to that, which has only just occurred to me, is we stay alive for other people but we only serve other people well we are only the best person we are or can be for other people when we are the person that we are best suited to be. And that means the person that does trust themselves, trust their instincts, trust the direction in which they want to go, believe that the way they are dealing with the now and investing the now is the only preparation for the future that amounts to anything. So yes, you may be right, you may be right in your bowdlerization of Virginia Woolf. It may be that we stay alive for other people. But in order for that to be a worthwhile thing to do, we need to stay alive as who we are for other people and to be who we are for other people. And that can often involve rejecting what other people advise us to be and trusting in our own judgment our own instincts, our own interests, our own passions and doing the things that energise us because they are the only thing in the end that amounts to anything. Thank you for listening.